Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn on a sublime Wiltshire morning, which cries out for a game of cricket. Hello, it's Richard Heller. It's a sublime morning here in Peachy Woodhouse's favourite county of Shropshire, where the pigs are fat and the owls are thin. And news travels slowly. But today we have, um, we're here to celebrate cricket's equivalent of the state opening of Parliament. Mm. And we have with us cricket's equivalent of the editor of The Times. And uh, it is none other than Lawrence Booth. We've been trying for several years to get Lawrence onto this, um, onto this programme. And we're very happy that he's here, Richard. We certainly are. Although I think, um, since it's the state opening of Parliament, I think um, Lawrence is more the equivalent of the Queen than the editor of the Times, <laughs> uh, or the, the Sovereign. Anyway, welcome, Lawrence. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me both. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Lawrence, before we get on to discussing, by the way, triumphant. Uh, I mean, there's so much in to discuss. But before we get on to our discussion, we've just had this news that Joe Root, the England captain, has stood down. Um, tell us what you think about that. I think it was the right decision. Um, I think he's had a bit of time to cool off after the West Indies defeat when he was, he sounded deluded, frankly, mm. after that series, mm. saying that England had made fine progress. They'd taken their sequence to one win in 17 tests. They'd, they hadn't won any of their last five series, which was nearly an all-time England record. His lack of strategical and tactical acumen had been exposed yet again, and I think it was, it was the right thing to do. Simply staying on because there was no decent alternative didn't strike me as a, a particularly rousing clarion call for English cricket. Yeah. Uh, and he's had a bit of time to think about it. He's probably read what some of the stronger voices in the, the media have said, the likes of Nasser Hussain, Michael Vaughan, Mike Atherton, former England captains themselves who've been in that position. They all said after that West Indies series he had to go. And I think he, he's, um, he's finally seen sense. Tell us who you think should replace him. Well, with a heavy heart, it, it can only be Ben Stokes. Um, I didn't want Stokes to ever have to captain England because he's got so much on his plate. But we've reached the point where England were going backwards under Joe Root. His captaincy was having a detrimental effect on their fortunes because he's such a poor strategist. And Stokes, I think, it, you know, there are obviously concerns about whether he can, uh, he can do everything that he does. And he's obviously took time off last summer, for, for, partly for mental health reasons. So do you want to land him with a captaincy? Not ideally, but English cricket is not in an ideal place right now. And if, if, for example, they say to Stokes, don't play 2020 international cricket, that's one task fewer that you'd have to do, then it, it, might, it may work. Play test cricket, uh, one, uh, World Cups for ODIs and some IPL, uh, and we'll nurse you through the last few years of your career as England test captain. It may work. I mean, it reminds me a bit of, um, you know, Imran Khan. He equally great with bat and ball and became much, much greater as captain because the responsibility lifted him, whereas you've seen that it's, it's, the responsibility diminished Root as a batsman. I could easily... Because Stokes is a great figure, isn't he? He's a momentous cricketer and actually a very good brain. Yeah, and I think he, he does have a better cricketing brain than Root. I think he'd be more intuitive, more aggressive... I don't think he'd, he wouldn't err on the conservative side, put it that way, which, which is so often the problem with English test captains. They, they, they go conservative. You know, you look at opening the bowling with Chris Wokes and Craig Overton in the West Indies, which anyone could have told you in advance was not going to work. Dropping Broad and Anderson because they're planning, planning for the future as usual, overthinking things, but, but not in an innovative way. And I think Stokes wouldn't fall into that trap. He, he'd go for it. Uh, and players would listen to him. They'd respect him. You know, one of the problems England had under the Root-Silverwood axis was that it was too cosy. No, not that you need to shout at everyone the whole time, but occasionally you need to um, put a bit of a rocket up their backside. And it, and it, wasn't, it was never happening under those two. Stokes, Stokes would command respect. And that would solve one half of that problem that, that, that existed under Root and Silverwood. Stokes would be in a pretty powerful position if he becomes captain, wouldn't he? Because there is no alternative. And I should imagine he'd get his way on just about anything, um, you know, in any, certainly in any confrontation with authority. Yeah, I think that's right. I think and he'd, he'd have to take the job under those um, circumstances, clearly. Um, he'd say, I want to do it my way. And if that means recalling Stuart Broad and Jimmy Anderson immediately, 
um, then, then so be it. If, it. You know, he'll be judged on his record, and he'll want the best players at his disposal. And he's got two tough Test series coming up this summer against uh, New Zealand and South Africa, plus the the over the sort of long <laughs> postponed fifth Test against India. So seven yeah. big Tests this summer, and then a trip to Pakistan. So it's a tough year for England. You know, they can't keep they can't keep losing. They've got to get a series victory on the board. That's why the West Indies trip was uh, was so disappointing, and eventually proved Root's undoing. I have to say that if I was Stokes and became captain, the first thing I'd say is I would be to ring up Alistair Cook and say, come back and open the batting, please. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, he's that not that sailed, old, unfortunately. Has it sailed? Why is that sailed? He lost his, his drive, essentially. Um, he seems I mean, to be driving along pretty nicely this season. Yeah, I think, I think he's got the life he enjoys now. Mm. Um, would he want to go back to facing the best bowlers in the world on tricky English pitches against the Dukes ball? I, I'd... I mean, look, it's, it's a real shame for English cricket because he's still the best opener in England, isn't he, quite clearly. Yeah, yeah. Um, they've tried any number of players uh, since Strauss retired and then subsequently after Cook's uh, retirement and, and none of them have, have ticked the box. People have hopes for Alex Lees, but I, I have my doubts. It would be great. Cook, if, if, look, if Stokes managed to persuade Cook to come back, then that would yeah. be a huge, huge tick in his box early on. Yeah. Now, Richard and I have spent the last 48 hours. This beautiful thing arrived at our house in advance of this. Richard and I have been studying it like we are swatting for an exam or something, but it's been very pleasurable. (laughs) What do we think of it, Richard? I think it's yet again. It's another. It's another great edition. It covers such a great deal as I've always thought uh, of your editions, Lawrence. It covers an unusual number of topics beyond cricket that give a context to cricket uh, and a depth to the cricket coverage. Much thicker than last year, reflecting the fact that it's been more cricket played, though there's still a strong influence of the pandemic in it on world cricket, um, which is tracked in the pages, particularly in the list of the the internationals have been postponed or cancelled because of the pandemic. Um, One thing that caught my eye, um, I counted 80 pages on global women's cricket, which is, um, I think, more than ever before, but it's still got to be balanced against nearly 800 pages on global men's cricket. And... um, it's a very crude comparison, but it seems to me to reflect a sort of enduring priority of, of men's cricket in both participation and attention and, of course, in money. Yeah, well, it's a fair point. Um, look, Wisdom can't always lecture others on, on the coverage of women's cricket. The first women's test was in the sort of mid-30s and Wisdom didn't actually report on it for about three or four more editions. So we didn't introduce a, a women's cricket section until about 2015. So we, we've got catching up to do like, like the rest of the, the game, really. Um, I mean, in answer to your, your 800 v 80 discrepancy, um, I think this year's wisdom covers about 40 men's tests, 40 to 45 men's tests, and only two women's tests. So to a degree, we are reflecting the imbalance that exists. Mm. I mean, partly, you know, there's always the, the, the tricky task with wisdom is to, to what extent do we simply reflect and to what extent are we activists, if you like, or what extent mm. are we trying to drive change? And there is a balance to be struck, and we, we can include more women's cricket. I mean, one of the, as, a, as a slight tangent, one of the, the problems we always face is squeezing everything in. Mm. Um, and we're always cutting stuff to squeeze more stuff in. So that, that's, a, that's an ongoing issue. Matthew Engel used to describe editing wisdom as like sort of chopping down a, a tropical rainforest each yeah. year. You had, to, you had to sort of knock oh. bits out so the other bits could breathe, um, mm. and, which isn't to say there shouldn't be more women's cricket. There always should be, and we're always looking at expanding that section. Mm. One other section I wondered whether you might think of expanding was disability cricket, which I think gets one one page. Two well, pages. I is think. it? Oh, sorry. Okay, two. Well, there's a, there's a nice photo of a, a, a wheelchair game in, in Bangladesh. But no, again, I take your point. Yeah. And we'd yeah. love to cover all, I, mean, I hesitate to use the word minority cricket, but um, the, the less talked about areas of the game, we'd love to cover them mm. in more depth than we do. But we're open to ideas. We're open to suggestions. Richard's suggestion he makes when we were doing going through this 48-hour intensive <laughs> revision session, um, <laughs> and I rather like it, a disabled cricketer of the year. Yeah, that's possible. We've I think since I've taken over, we've introduced a leading woman cricketer and leading T20 cricketer. Mm. So one of the, again, one of the issues we discuss, discuss occasionally is can we add another award? Does it become um, unwieldy? And that's not to say that a disabled cricketer of the year wouldn't be a worthy choice to if we were to expand yeah, it. So I will yeah. I will add that to the list for the the, the next um, wisdom meeting. I have to say I was just reflecting uh, on this wisdom. I don't think cricket has ever had such a troubled period. 
probably in its entire history as the last 12 months. You, you've had this epidemic of racism in English cricket. You've had the ongoing disaster of the English cricket board, which I think is an existential hmm. issue for English cricket. Um, you're very tough in your notes, I see, on Tom Harrison, justifiably so, and you take him to task for his quite unseemly a bonus in the in the light of the which he hasn't repaid has he i don't under, as i understand it um in the light of the sackings and also i think his in gross incompetence we've had also covid and we've also had the disgraceful shambles i mean just as a cricket lover of england of the ashes series which could not have been worse mismanaged and it's it, it's led me fearing for the future of English cricket in a way which it never has before. And I mean, actually, ECB I, look feels to me very much like it is actually hostile to the game of cricket. And, you know, they pay each other, they pay themselves huge amounts of money, but it's really driven by neoliberal values, which are hostile to the whole essence of the game. Well, I think that's right. I mean, of course, ECB will tell themselves and everyone else that they they have. Um, secured the the financial future of of the English game with the TV deal that brought in the hundred. Effectively, now it remains to be seen whether that will sort of wipe its feet financially. But I, I think what you say is right. Essentially, that um, English cricket has possibly never been at a lower ebb when you factor in what's been going on off the field, where where whole swathes of, of potential cricketers have been dissuaded from getting involved in the game because uh, because of the, the the revelations that Azim Rafiq spoke of so bravely and and the on-field fiasco um you know people talk about the money that the sky has brought into the game we're in the era of central contracts professionalism there is no way that a, a team as well resourced as England should be winning one test out of 17 and and going to Australia with really no hope i mean unless you were in that dressing room and telling yourself that as Root kept doing, that England were going to do something special. It was blatantly obvious to everyone else that they were, they were going to lose. Um, and they were only saved, spared a whitewash, really, by the rain in Sydney. So I felt I felt in my editor's notes that the the bonus that Harrison and a few other executives were sharing somehow symbolised the the rottenness at the heart of English cricket at the moment. It was it was quite a useful tool for, a, a, you know, journalistically to get stuck into because it was a it was something that, that that played so badly with the public. A lot of them were already very angry about the way that the hundred has um, mm. taken over the summer, pushed the Red Bull game even further to the, further to the margins with inevitable consequences for the Test team, uh, and then to see that after the ECB sacked sixty-two people during the pandemic because they were running out of money, partly because they've invested everything into the hundred, to see that the executives were were lining their own pockets. Um, I mean, you, you can't begin to describe how bad the optics are on that. And it remains to be seen what happens with that money. I'm, I'm not actually sure whether it's been paid out yet. I suspect not. Um, but it'd be r- roughly, it could be in the next sort of few weeks if it hasn't happened already. And I think Harrison has his his answer so far to that question has been, well, it's it's a sort of fact of corporate life, and this is how it works, and this is the deal I signed. But he has to understand that it looks terrible, and it looks like someone is taking money out of the game at a time when it needs all the money it can get. So yes, a very low ebb, uh, very unfortunate. I hate having to write negative notes, but someone wants to describe Wisden as the conscience of cricket. And if we can't say these things, who else is going to? Do you see any remedy for the shortcomings of the ECB? And would you like to see some higher sort of political intervention in the ECB, as, as would happen in other, quite a lot of other countries with this kind of playing result, particularly in Pakistan, where, of course, the, you know, the control of cricket is very much political. But... Um, our government has always had a standoff policy with um, the administration of English sport. Should government and parliament get more involved in the the state of English cricket, uh, dire as it is? Well, it's an interesting one. Um, I mean, the ICC explicitly ban political interference mm. in national boards, and of course that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't stop what happens in, say, Sri Lanka, where the yeah. the sports minister effectively you know gets heavily involved in selection. And we, we, we know how heavily politicised Indian cricket has become now with the links yeah. between the BCCI and the BJP. Pakistan cricket has always been heavily politicised. Uh, Zimbabwean cricket was, you know, but <laughs> in theory, uh, politicians aren't supposed to get involved. Now, having said that, the the, the intervention of the, the, the Digital Culture Media and Sports Committee, DCMS Committee, in the racism issue last year was, was quite important because they essentially mm-hmm. said to Tom Harrison that he had to come to in front of the committee every three months and update them on the ECB's uh, fight against racism in the sport. Now, that was as close as you're going to get probably to 
political intervention. I mean, the rest of it, unfortunately, is opinions. <laughs> and, it is. Um, you know, it's, it's all very well for us to sit here and say that politicians should get involved. Well, not everyone agrees with that. Indeed. But it's at least, as you say, it was at least about accountability. And it's what strikes me is, whenever I look into the ECB, what strikes me is how little accountable it is to any other, you know, to the world of cricket in general, and to English cricket lovers in general. And there's, um, it's not even, it's not obliged to listen to them. There's no representation of, um, of cricket fans and the proceedings of the ECB in any way. I tell you something, Richard, I was making an observation here, that the one cricketer who the current Prime Minister really knows and likes is a chap called Kevin Peterson. He's a t- you know, he used to become, he was part of the key KP crowd at one stage. And of course, Kevin Peterson is the great champion of, of the 100 and franchise cricket. And, oh. well, and so it's not very encouraging. Indeed. Um, let's um, move on because it is such a um, rich wisdom. I'd just like to ask one quick question, Lawrence. How long does it take to plan the content of wisdom, and particularly the content you know, beyond the actual coverage of cricket, you know, the features that uh, that distinguish it so much? It, well, it's a, it's an ongoing process. It's year-round, really. Um, I mean, sometimes we have ideas up our sleeve that don't see the light of day for that edition, but we might keep them for the following edition. Um, it's a it's a tricky balancing act, actually. People people ask about the job, and they imagine that the, the hardest part of it is writing the editor's notes or picking... The, the five cricketers actually picking the five is, is great fun. It's a sort of yeah. glorified pub game, really. Mm. Um, writing the notes is is quite a challenge, but uh, but but one I enjoy. Um, but but I tend to do that in sort of January and February. We tend to go to press at the end of February. Now, choosing the articles for the the comments section is probably the toughest part of the book because you're looking at a, a balance essentially of pieces. There might be an anniversary piece, for example. So this year it was forty years since the first. Um, rebel tortoise in Africa, mm. and we wanted to interview those guys before Very they started. Very interesting piece, by the way. It was. Yeah. Thank yep. you. Yeah, Andrew Miller did a really good job there. We wanted to interview those guys. Didn't want to wait to the 50th anniversary because not all of them will be around then. So you, you have an anniversary piece. You might have pieces that reflect the big stories of the year. So obviously, we have a piece by Azim Rafiq with David Hopkins. Brilliant judgment. On the... Superb judgment to have Azim Rafiq writing in Wisdom. Thank you. Um, David Hopps looked at it from a sort of slightly more distant perspective. We had uh, a lady called Tuba Sangha, who used to be heavily involved in Afghanistan cricket. Yes, that was a very, very important piece too. Yeah, very such a moving piece. So really, it's changed my view of the whole situation. Very powerful right, well, piece. That's, that's interesting. Um, yeah. So you're trying to balance out the, the, those two main threads, and then you want to surprise readers. Um, we we don't often publish unsolicited material, but occasionally some someone comes to us with a ready formed idea. We think that. that that is so interesting and unexpected. I want to run that. And, and a, a, an example this year was Charles Barr's piece on Philip Larkin. Mm. Uh, Such a fascinating centenary of his birth. So there was a bit of a journalistic peg for uh, to justify its publication. By the way, the that that piece on Larkin was so interesting because Larkin was sort of obsessed by cricket, but it hard. The point which Charles Barr makes is it hardly emerges in his poetry. That's right, and actually that goes back a bit to the, the point Richard made earlier about you know sport not featuring heavily enough in the national discourse. It's like those old histories of of, of Britain which never mentioned W.G. Grace when they go in the Victorian era. It's like some some of these you you, you can't take sport out of the the national debate, and I think that's I think what what happened with Larkin was there was a certain degree of snobbery among literary editors uh, who, who who weren't interested in in the, the many mm. cricket references in his. In his oeuvre, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, so so that was a, another exa- an example of the, a kind of unexpected piece you might get. Raf Nicholson did a piece on mm. women's cricket during the war, which again was slightly unexpected. But I'm I'm quite keen on running good stories about women's cricket that have been overlooked down the years, because as we touched on earlier, it, it is a, an area of the game that has been sort of scandalously underrepresented. So it's to go back to your original question, it's it's a question of of, of finding a balance really between different threads and hoping that you end up with a, a kind of a, a sort of satisfying whole uh, and that that'll be for others to judge really. One thing that I think has been very good in, in wisdom in recent years and, and in this edition too is um, the timelines wisdom does of um, you know important events and important topics. I think I thought there was an excellent one uh, on the racial crisis and equally an excellent one on the on the pandemic. The racialist, the, the racial crisis timeline is very deadpan, very you know lays out the facts and the narrative very clearly. But it 
makes you know makes a very profound commentary at the same time. The messages keep um, keep coming through in a big way. Two very strong messages came over to me in the entire racism section. One is that um, basically white players and white administrators simply weren't aware of the impact of their words and behaviour on black and Asian people. Or if they were, they expected to sort of treat them as a joke, you know, as, as, as banter or as, you know, just part of the game. And secondly, I think even what really strikes me even more, there's almost a complete lack of curiosity about the underrepresentation of minority ethnic people in English cricket at all levels. Nobody says, why aren't there more black and Asian players? Why aren't there more black and Asian coaches? Why aren't there more black and Asian administrators? It just, yeah. nobody's curious about it. Well, I, th- I think it's the, it's the old sort of difference between us, the, the discrepancy between sort of explicit racism and, and unconscious bias, I suppose. And I think, in, I think the problem English white mainstream cricket has always faced is that it, it doesn't regard itself as racist and it, mm-hmm. it hasn't addressed the unconscious bias at the same time mm-hmm. which, which clearly exists i mean you, the, the, the timeline you mentioned in last year's book was as you say we simply had to lay out the facts and it spoke for itself because i've had discussions with people who say there isn't racism in english cricket and i, I simply show them a screenshot of those two pages and so well read, read this and t- tell me it doesn't exist and by the way it's not for you a white man to say there isn't racism in English mm-hmm. cricket because quite clearly you won't have experienced it yourself. It's our job to listen to the people who say they've experienced it. Um, and that hasn't, I mean, what Azim Rafiq has done uh, really has been a catalyst for all this. He's, he's allowed other people, he's given them the courage, the courage to speak their mind and tell their stories. And it's it really now is the moment for English cricket to listen. As usual, we've reacted too slowly, too late. Um, and after the event, which is, a, by the way, another great failing of the ECB. Oh, yes. On that now is the moment to listen and, and and not to not to nitpick, which has been going on really with with Rafiq. People have been pointing out his errors and his failings. Well, sure, no one's perfect, but what Rafiq has been is a catalyst for for great change. And the question now is whether English cricket wants to run with that change. We'll find out. That's right. Captain Dreyfus is not a terribly nice person. Um, he had a lot of a lot of failings, and um, but he was still a victim. Absolutely. <laughs> um, that's. Move on to mention five choosing five cricketers of the year. Um, I think there's one selection this year that's going to make perhaps some older readers sputter a little bit, and that's um, Dane von Niekerk. I'm sorry to say I've not heard of before Wisden, so that's a very right. educational thing. <laughs> but for choosing choosing her for a contribution to the women's hundred. Yes, um, I mean one of the cri- well the, the criteria for for being a wisdom cricketer is your uh, influence on or excellence in the previous English summer. Now, the women's hundred. Whatever you think about the the men's hundred, the women's hundred was a game changer, and we'll no mm. doubt get onto that later. Um, I felt that to ignore that, what what may go down as the most important summer for 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 women's cricket ever, I thought to ignore that in choosing the five, which we like to think tells something of a story of the previous summer would have been a mistake hmm. um now van niekirk was she was captain of the winning t- of the winning team she was the mvp most valuable player of the 100 she was a leading run scorer uh, she took wickets she was a, she was a great spokesperson for the game as well actually she i was at the oval on the first night and her team won and she said this is this just feels amazing to be here she spoke very well about what it meant for women's cricket so for me it was a it wasn't a difficult choice. Um, not, I dare say, not everyone will agree with it. There'll, there'll be the usual cries of tokenism, which uh, I'm usually faced with when when a woman is is named. <laughs> um, I, I can live with that because I know that it, I, well. I know it's not tokenism. I'm, I'm choosing five names who have made an impact on the previous summer. For me, she was a, a worthy member of that five. Reading a profile, I certainly agree with that. One, just one English nominee. Ollie Robinson, and here again, the racial narrative, um, as you know, makes an impact, and it's not um, not just yeah. a, it's not just a, it has to be inevitably. It, it can't just be a cricketing profile as they usually are. No, yeah. there, there was no avoiding uh, that that side of his story. Of course, the, the the tweets that were unearthed on the the, the day of his his Test debut against New Zealand Lords, written mm-hmm. about a decade earlier, but nonetheless, pretty horrible stuff. Um, and we felt that we couldn't possibly tell his story without delving into that and he knew that that he'll face questions about that for a lot of the rest of his career if he's not too busy talking about his lack of fitness huh. um 
And, and of course, I mean, you, you mentioned they're the only England player again. The fact that there is just one England player in the five does say something about last summer when England only won one of their the, the, the six tests that were played. He had a great summer, actually. It was a shame mm. that um, other events since have overshadowed his uh, his bowling. He took, well, he was a leading wicket taker in the, in the Test Series England v India, 21 wickets. He didn't have a terrible Ashes. He averaged 25 with the ball. He just mm. wasn't as fit as he should have been. And it was a great shame that he couldn't get on the park against the West Indies because I think he'd have done well. There. I think he's an outstanding bowler. He just needs to get fit. And that's the fitness, though, isn't like not trying. It's back troubles, isn't it? I mean, it's not it's his fault, is it? Well, that depends. It depends who you listen to. The, oh, the, yeah. the England dressing room got pretty fed up with him. That's why they went public in Hobart about his lack of fitness. They they thought he wasn't he wasn't doing everything he should to 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 give himself the best possible chance to be a successor to Broad and Anderson because that was their hope. I mean, let's face it, they dropped them for the Caribbean because they thought Robinson was going to step up, uh, and he didn't do it. So they're frustrated with him. There's no doubt about that. One very typical story within the five cricketers of the year, sort of thing you hear so often, Rohit Sharma's profile comes from a low-income background in India. And, you know, they look at him as a teenager, as a bowler first. And he's too shy to say, I'm actually a batsman, uh, until they finally see him playing some beautiful shots on the outfield, just knocking up. And they think, wow. This is Absolutely. where this boy's real talent really is. I think that, you know, you really see that story so often in sort of Pakistan and Indian cricket and in, all over the Indian subcontinent. Mm. I mean, it's one of the nice parts about the five cricketers is you get a few paragraphs on their upbringing and you might hear stories from their childhood that you weren't previously aware of. And that's a very, as you say, it's, that's a very characteristic story from the, from the Asian subcontinent where uh, because of the sort of rigid um, class system, really, I won't say caste system because I think that's been replaced by a sort of class system, really. Um, people are afraid to push themselves or be pushed, and it, and sometimes it's a fluke they get discovered, mm. especially in a country with a, as large a population as India. But thank goodness he was because he was the he was the outstanding batsman of last summer. Indeed, oh, so much else to pick over. <laughs> um, lost three great cricket writers. Big rightful tribute to John Woodcock. And um, your notes and the editors it makes a very important point. We may not see their like again because of the nature of. The nature of cricket journalism now, um, and I loved that remark you quote of John Woodcock's. You know what? What the Times expects? You know, on the way to the boat to Australia, they want two hundred words by salon. There just isn't the leisure, is there, and the opportunity for writers as good as that to express themselves. No, it was a different era. Yes, he told me um, not long before he died. He told me about being on that trip and Neville Cardus. <laughs> He had dinner on the first night with Del Cardos, and he thought that was fascinating, riveting to sit, have dinner. But after the 40th night in a row in which he'd had dinner with Neville Cardos, I think the experience was beginning to pall. He was a great... He lives only about 15 miles away from here, Long Parish, uh, where I am. And I'd pass him on Long Parish on the A303 every time I drive to London. He was a wonderful writer, a beautiful prose stylist, and such a particularly exquisitely courteous and thoughtful man, wasn't he? A great editor of, of wonderful editor of wisdom, because he had a sense of particular sensibility, didn't he, John Woodcock? Yes, he did. He, um, I mean, he came from an era where he was allowed to effectively just write match reports, which he did exceptionally well. And he was he was not a judgmental kind of writer, yes, as you say. His prose was. I mean, not only was his prose sort of crystal clear and and, and beautiful to read, but he. The players liked him because he he wasn't too harsh. That's not to say he wasn't critical. He could be, but he um, he came from an era where he's allowed to do his thing at his own pace. Hence the two hundred words hmm. by Salon and the and the and the drive in the Rolls Royce with Henry Blofeld to India yeah. in nineteen seventy six, which yeah. is another piece in the book where that story is told Indeed. by by Blofeld. So the, the point I was making in the notes really was that the likes of him, Martin Johnson and David Foote, who the other two you you alluded to, who who did their own thing as well, Johnson with jokes and Footy with the sort of the human angle, if you like. Um, now we were discussing foot only last week um, right. with uh, Andy Nash from Somerset. Yeah, yeah. He he was using Foot's great description of Harold Gimblett as a sort of metaphor for for cricket, for what county cricket means, and what he's being destroyed, of course, by the ECB. Absolutely, and the three of them were allowed to do their own thing. They didn't have to be all rounders, which I think a lot of cricket writers are expected to be now. And there's there's very little time to breathe. I mean, Mike Atherton touches on this in his piece on Woodcock, 
in the, in the front of the book where he, I think he <laughs> he describes the cricket writers today as being tethered to their desks like goats, um, uh, which uh, which may be a bit harsh, but there is some truth in it. Not many goats survive being being tethered. That's the problem. That's true. Well, yeah, but also goats have to eat, spend their time eating an awful lot of rubbish. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. So the metaphor does work. Um, uh, so you know, th- th- things have changed. We may we w- we won't see their likes again. But, um, that that's a cliche, but it's true in this instance because because the nature of the job has changed so much, and you wouldn't you'd never get a cricket correspondent now who'd just be allowed uh, to write match reports, doesn't have to do press conferences, comment pieces, interviews. Um, he, he lived in uh, blessed times, really, and he was he was a perfect man for that situation. In spite of the modern conditions, there's still a lot of very good cricket writing around. And it seems to me one of the things wisdom does, uh, and not alone, is give cricket writers an opportunity to write longer and more reflectively from time to time. Um, and long may this continue. Well, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm glad you think so. Yeah. Mm. I also think it's in the, wisdom can be independent in a way in which we're losing because of the influence of these broadcasting deals, the BBC. And Sky, you're getting you're, you're getting a, a generation of sports writers who are appendages of the big money which owns cricket now. And what you get, and I I I've, I've, I think actually it's disgraceful. It's, you have exactly analogous situation in political reporting now, where a lot of journalists are just manifestations of the party machinery, in particular the Tory party machinery, and it's really quite an upsetting thing. It's a sort of degradation of journalism. But what wisdom has here is you are independent. You're completely independent. You've got bracing views. Your notes are absolutely devastating about the administration of, of British English cricket, which, oddly enough, you won't find in, in, in organisations, um, including quite famous cricket commentators who were too attached to the big money which basically owns and controls the ECB and therefore they won't touch it. Well, I'm I'm glad you think that and I, I, I fully agree. I mean, one of the, the greatest privilege actually of doing the wisdom job is that you are fully independent. Um, we are not beholden to anyone and, and that, that that does make writing the editor's notes a challenge and a responsibility. I mean, the, the, the phenomenon you're talking about we saw last summer with 100 where both the BBC and Sky were acting. I mean, I mentioned North Korea in my editor's notes because some of yeah. the some of the coverage was um, was utterly one eyed. Uh, they were presenting the hundred as if it was it was a revolution. They were talking about scoops as if we'd never seen them in T Twenty Blast mm. before. No, it was it was an abnegation of journal, journalistic responsibility, really. Uh, and yes, there are too many uh, vested interests in cricket. There always have been. There are too many conflicts of interest. One of the important, one of the very important things about wisdom is that it, it it's um, it, it doesn't dance to anyone's tune, uh, and I am given absolute carte blanche to write what I want by my publishers. Bloomsbury wouldn't get involved in no. in that. So that that is that is the greatest thing about wisdom. Mm, absolutely vital function. A few more things I want to pick out from the, the contents. Uh, we always now look very carefully at. Um, Tanya Aldred on the environment, which is now a regular feature, uh, and something that hasn't been, uh, you know, a, a whole range of threats to cricket that just aren't chronicled enough and aren't combated enough. This year, a slightly different approach from previous ones. She's talking about um, cricketers' own efforts and campaigning on the environment. It makes Pat Cummins seem an even more wonderful person <laughs> than we thought of him, than we thought possible. Can he be more wonderful? Yeah, no, no. Yeah, but it prompts um, a question, you know, what are the authorities doing to support their, to support them? And, um, you know, what are national boards doing? What are the, What is the ICC doing to exercise some, you know, some pressure on the huge interests um, against the huge... Sort of corporate interests that are wrecking the environment. Well, very little is the answer. Um, yeah. Tanya goes to the ICC each year to to find out how how are those plans coming along that you told me about last year and you've not spoken about, and they say oh, it's in the pipeline, an oil pipeline, no doubt. Um, huh. They're 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 very they're they're uninterested in the environmental issues really, and in a sense you can see why because cricket's air miles are, are disgracefully large. In, the, in this cricket environment piece that Tanya wrote, she, she speaks to Maddie Villiers, the England off-spinner, who, uh, who's, try, who's trying to sort of get interest in the England 
women's dressing room. She went vegan. They they offset their their air miles during the ashes with a scheme that's uh, an environmental scheme that's happening in Australia. So they are they are they are aware of it, but it's also it's almost as if we need sort of activism from the bottom up, and it shouldn't be that way. I mean, I actually spoke. We had a Zoom with Tom Harrison last year, where where I asked him about the question of how tours are planned. So, for example, if you fly into Australia, why don't you fly to Perth first, then fly across to Sydney, then do the the games on the on the east coast? So you're 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 um, limiting the air miles. And instead, they zigzag across the country. Same in India. I mean, you go all mm. over the place, rather than yeah. going in a sort of neat circle. They don't think about these things. He said they should think about them more. But why does it need everyone else to point this out when, you know, the whole world will obviously suffer from climate change. But cricket countries are particularly badly placed when you look at them, almost to a country. Yes. Um, mm. uh, and I don't think I don't think it's a, a, a subject that, that the boards are taking seriously, partly because, like politicians, these these people pass through. They're, they're, they're for five years. Their, their main job is to keep the show on the road financially. Uh, and the environment, frankly, becomes someone else's problem. So you need a you need a change in attitude, really. And I'm not terribly hopeful about that. Mm. Put up a put up a an arm at this point for the former prime minister of Pakistan, Imran Khan, and his billion tree planting program. And so there are there are the old fo- former cricketers that have to have played a role. Yeah, well, he's got he's got sort of um, the family pressures, no doubt, hasn't he, from his, his old brother-in-law, who's quite an environmentalist. But but still, I mean, uh, absolutely, it needs it needs more. More things like that, and more, and more high-profile people talking about them. That's why Pat, someone like Pat Cummins is so important. Yeah, and one other thing caught our eye, particularly uh, we we love the cricket around the world section, but uh, for once the section on one country, Ukraine, made very sad reading. We had a long profile of a guest on our podcast, Kobus Olivier, the CEO of Ukraine cricket, but it it was a very upbeat profile of him and Ukraine cricket, and but of course it was written before the war, uh, which has absolutely devastated not just the country but the devastated the country's uh, cricketing infrastructure and prospects, which will probably never recover, not for a long time. It's a very it's an astonishing spirit experience speaking to him in besieged Kiev uh, as we did. Yes, I, I listened to that. It's very powerful. Um... I mean, one of the things about wisdom is we always have this lag between going to press at the end of February and publication in sort of early to mid-April, and that we always hope that nothing major will happen. But that those hopes are usually to do with cricketing issues. Um, yeah. A couple of years back, we had uh, Sandpaper Gate, which happened in, in yeah. that sort of little window where obviously the wisdom came out and had nothing to say on it. Well, the, the war is obviously on a, a different scale altogether. And yes, Cobus, spoke, uh, he, he writes... Optimistically, in this year's wisdom about about the future of cricket in Ukraine, there, there was a, a large sort of South Asian population there. Of course, we we all saw on the news a lot of you know in, Indian students having to flee mm. uh, Ukraine because of, because of the war. Hard to see now where where that goes. Um, I mean, Kobus himself has left the country. I believe. Did he go to Poland? Possibly. He went to Poland first, and he's yeah. now in Croatia. He's teaching. Croatia, right. okay. He's coaching in Croatia. Well, good um, luck to him. He, he's he's obviously a remarkable man. Yeah. He is, um, and uh, the four dogs are. Uh, his four dogs are with him, and they're right. thriving in Croatia. <laughs> glad to say they're thriving in Croatia as well. Yeah. Good news. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Lawrence, uh, we look at the book reviews very closely, and very good choice of um, book of the year. We thought. Um, David Woodhouse's book, Who Only Cricket Know, is a count of the um, England cricket tour of the West Indies, 53-54. Uh, it's a very good book. Uh, we enjoyed talking to him about it earlier in the podcast. Uh, it's a book that gives a very full treatment of a very action-packed tour, um, full of incident on and off the field. Um, but it was also a book that was full of um, social and historic context. And, and put that tour in the in the whole context of um, England's colonial history and um, uh, England's experience of racial integration and non-integration. Uh, so very, very, very good choice indeed. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously the Vic who wrote the review, that it's in the gift of the reviewer, the, the choice. Mm. And I, I, I was very happy with that choice. I, I think, as you say, it, I mean, the, the, the title of the book, obviously an allusion to probably the most famous quote in literary cricket history what what do they know of cricket or any cricket know from CLR James and that which in a sense is a is a sort of idea that tries that informs some of the way I try to edit wisdom I, mm. I, I, 
cricket is always most interesting when you see it in its social and historical context. And what David Woodhouse did in this book is, is precisely that. It's interesting that the, these kind of tour books have gone out of fashion a bit. Um, so it's quite reassuring that uh, someone is still able to write about something that happened, what, 70, nearly 70 years ago, uh, and, and, and someone else is prepared to publish it. Um, and he's done a terrific job about a tour that hasn't been you know, we often think of Bodyline as the great controversial English tour. Well, th- this wasn't a million miles behind for, for, for different reasons. So I'm very happy that, that David was the winner. Uh, and, you know, some stiff competition uh, fighting off last year. You know, Shil Berry did a, has done a very nice piece. Also, a- another allusion to, to CLR James and his title, which is Beyond mm-hmm. the Boundaries. Uh, and and he, he, he uses his vast experience of, of travelling the world, reporting on it for the, the Telegraph, the Sunday Telegraph, to... to to give his unique take, I would say. Shields always been a unique cricket mm. writer, a, a, a left-field thinker. I'll often read his articles and think there's probably two ideas there that had never occurred to me in my in my wildest dreams. Uh, maybe one I would never agree with, but um, but always challenges you as a cricket writer. So um, very, very uh, worth reading that book. Uh, and there's just one other book I'd like to mention that um, by Charles Sale, um, former colleague of mine at the Daily Mail. The covers are off Civil War at Lords, which mm. which sounds a bit dry. It's about the, um, the, the 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 tunnels underneath the nursery end at Lords, which were mm. bought by Charles Rifkin, the businessman, some years ago at uh, knockdown price. And there's been this ongoing battle with MCC about what to do with the land above it for many years, and it has become quite uh, fractious. And Charles Sale's book is really a story of sort of English institutions uh, eating themselves and, and mm. committee life uh, blocking progress and so on. So it, it's it's uh, it's a fascinating insight. Vic Marks uh, was was it was your reviewer this year. It's nice to see Vic still in action. Absolutely. And he made a very tell it. We think he made a very good choice. One of the great voices in English cricket, always underrated on TMS, in in my view. I think so. And we also thought that we were very relevant. Tim Delisle, who was a very fine editor, although brief editor of, of Wisdom, wasn't he? Um, we, th- we thought that his article about captaincy and what it takes, very interesting, very relevant, particularly in light of the news which has just come through about Joe Root. That's right. Um, t- well, Tim was a revolutionary editor just the one year in 2003, but famously put uh, a picture on the cover, Michael Vaughan. Um, I remember at the time, Peter, you weren't you weren't wildly impressed with that decision, um, but I think I think you you came round to it in the in the ensuing years. Yeah. Um, and so Tim and, and Tim's the, the sort of thrust of the piece essentially was there is no way or no accepted way of measuring Test captains that sort of uh, you know we have batting averages and bowling averages. What do we do with with captains? And the, and the, one of the hooks of the piece really was the fact that last year. Joe Root became both the most victorious England Test captain in history and the most defeated, um, <laughs> partly by virtue of, of having captain England in more Tests than anyone else. And Tim's point really was that it's all very well saying he's the most victorious captain in English history. What does this actually say about him? Is this just a function of longevity? Um, is there a is there a, a, a more nuanced way of measuring captain? So he goes through some various statistical tricks and he looks at. Um, Win percentages and draw percentages and uh, and and this kind of thing, and it's just a, it's a it's a different kind of statistical statistical take on captaincy, which is an area of the game which has often uh, escaped statistical scrutiny. And, and Tim's done it very nicely. Very hard to measure. I mean, you know that some captains take away value from their team, and some add and 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 some add to it. And you don't know how much. Steve Waugh was a, was a great. Is always, you know, right. Has got a reputation as a great captain, perhaps deservedly. But he did captain a really good team for a very long time. Well, precisely, uh, and some of these things are immeasurable. Uh, Joe mm. Joe Root has not had a good attack to to play with, really, um, especially mm. without Broad and Anderson. He had, he had uh, some terrible bowlers, Broad Anderson, yes, yeah. which he preferred not to play, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yes, very very odd that was. Yeah, um, I don't think his bowling attack was that bad at all, actually. Well, abroad it is uh, not in English conditions, but it's always struggled at abroad, and he's, he's yeah. I think actually one one recent captain who definitely added value to his team who got a lot out of a. Not terribly powerful team was uh, was Misbah or Hack. Yeah, Misbah. I mean, he faced the added sort of difficulty of, of playing all his tests abroad. Effectively, couldn't play mm. any tests in Pakistan, where 
Not one. had to play yeah. every everything in empty stadiums in the UAE where they, they Pakistan built their own fortress really they became practically unbeatable in those conditions mm-hmm. uh, and he, he as ever with a Pakistan captain he faced so much criticism from oh. from home but he, he he had this sort of temperament that allowed him to, uh, to to ignore all that and formed a brilliant batting partnership with Yunus Khan I mean they, they were two wisdom cricketers of the year in 2017 together mm-hmm. um, yeah. because of two all draw in England that summer. Uh, and yes, a, a, a towering figure, really. You look at the list of Pakistan Test cricketers; you have to do everything abroad. There's one. I think there's one statistic which tells you a lot: is do you have a higher batting average as captain than you do when you weren't captain? And uh, uh, Misbah, his batting average went stratospheric after he was became captain, just like Imran Khan's did. Yeah. Whereas Joe Root, he was a stellar sort of mid-50s, wasn't he, batting average before he became captain, and he's about 45 as captain. And I think it just showed you that the being captain, I think he couldn't, it was too much of a burden from him for him. The interesting ones are where norm, the great captains tend to perform better as captain. The, 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 yeah, it's interesting you say that. And Root actually, I mean, he... He's, he's Wisdom's leading cricket in the world for last year because he had such a good time of it with the bat, six test hundreds. He began this year with two hundreds in the Caribbean. Actually, his batting, weirdly, did the opposite of what usually happens with England captains, which is it got better. He did have a couple of fallow years in the mid the mid years of his captaincy. But then at the point where he's supposed to get knackered and lose all hope and, uh, and energy, like most of his predecessors did, you know, Cook, Atherton, Gooch, all, all these Strauss, these guys fell away. Root got better. So the hope now is that he he can spend three years being the best batsman in Test cricket, score fifteen hundred years, uh, fifteen hundred runs a year for England, uh, and and Stokes can 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 carry the burden. But I, I hear what you say. I mean, it's it, some some captains are inspired by leadership, and they they they, they take that adrenaline into their run scoring. Graham Gooch did it, of course, became Very the best it. batsman in the world in his late thirties, early forties. Um, but not everyone does. Not everyone has the temperament. So that's always fascinating to watch. Because Root is going to have an enduring problem if England can't find any reasonable openers. I mean, he began his career, didn't he, with two, you know, batting behind two very good openers. Then he batted behind one very good opener, and now he's batting behind none. That's right, and he's gone back up to number three, so he is effectively mm. an opener because England yes. so regularly lose yeah. an early wicket that he's coming exactly. in yep. ten for one yep. in the fourth over every time. Yeah. Uh, his worry, I mean, he. He prefers number four, but he felt that he was coming in at 20 for two. So he was still effectively an opener at number four. So why not try and fight the fire earlier is essentially his his perspective. But of course, it means he faces a newer ball each time. So there is more jeopardy for the England team in general. It's a, yep. It's been a battle that he's had to face throughout his career. It was probably his best test innings, or one of them, 254 against Pakistan at Old Trafford in 2016. That came at number three and people thought, oh, he's, he's cracked it. Trevor Bayliss has finally persuaded him to that the best the team's best batsman, as always happens in Australia, goes in at number three. Uh, Root didn't like that because of English conditions. He wanted to stay away from the new ball. So this summer will be interesting because South Africa and New Zealand's seam attacks are both mm-hmm. um, both formidable, and he will be in early on a regular basis. I can assure you of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, the formidable George De Bell, really a very independent and thoughtful cricket writer. Very unusual in the history of the game to find somebody like that, of cricket writing itself. He had an excellent essay on the 100, which raises the the big question now. Is cricket heading for some kind of crisis in its future, i.e. has the 100 obliterated the, the county championship as, as, a serious, as, a, as a serious force? And of course, that's totally relevant to the fact that England can't find any openers anymore. Yes, well, there's no first-class cricket. Apart from a couple of test matches, there is now no first-class county cricket in uh, August, which is given away, given over to the 100 and the Royal London Cup, which is now effectively a second eleven competition because all the big players are going to the 100. So, look, I mean, the 100 is essentially a symptom of uh, a malaise that has been going on for a few years now, which is the, uh, the marginalisation of red ball cricket. If you were a young uh, batsman looking to find your way in the game now, the chances are you'd be practicing your your scoop shot or your ramp or your reverse sweep. You wouldn't be practicing your forward defensive because that is not where the money is, and it's a tough mm-hmm. job. Alistair Cook said when he quit Test cricket in 2018 that he opening the batting in England had never been tougher for the previous two years because of the pitches were um, starting a bit damper. Because this is getting a bit technical, but drainage is so good now mm-hmm. that they're worried about pitches getting dry. 
um, so they start them a bit damp. It means that if you're an opening batsman and you're the, the first two hours, it can be a nightmare. It's a lottery. So who would be an opening batsman now for, for England? Um, and we've seen it in the, the returns of all the guys who've been tried in the test team. And if, if England can't produce test openers and if youngsters are, are, are going for the money and white ball cricket, and don't forget that outside the English summer, you can now make a living as a franchise cricketer playing around the world. You can go to mm. the, the PSL, the BBL, the, the IPL, if you're lucky enough. You can even play T10 cricket in Abu Dhabi. Mm. Um, there are so many money-spinning tournaments on offer that Red Bull cricket really is the unsexy older cousin. Uh, mm-hmm. And we have to be very careful about wh- where we're going with that. If the administrators are happy with the, the gradual disintegration of Red Bull cricket, well, uh, then it's up to us to protest. But they, they claim that they that, that, that Test cricket is still the, the primary form of the game. Well, it's not backed up by their deeds. And it's certainly not being backed up by the, the fortunes of England's Test team. And the 100, the 100 is a good uh, vehicle for us to get angry about because... Uh, it, it, it sums up everything that is wrong with the priorities of, of English cricket right now. I think, Richard, that is the moment we should bring a, a close to this conversation, which has been absolutely illuminating, and that Indeed. is the verdict of the editor of of Wisdom, the supreme authority of the great game, which every, you and I and everybody listening to this podcast loves. I think that's probably right. This um, uh, poetic tribute, Lawrence, to the appearance of wisdom. Um, it's not very well known that Wordsworth was a great cricket fan. He was actually a early Glamorgan supporter, for reasons uh, be apparent from his best-known poem. Um, this is how he didn't live long enough to greet wisdom, but this is how he might have done. I wandered lonely as a cloud amongst the bookshop's empty tills, when all at once I saw a crowd a host of golden daffodils, like guardsmen with their stiffened backs, the piles of wisdom almanacs, continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way. They stretched in never-ending line on joyous publication day. Ten thousand saw I crammed with facts on cricket's esoteric acts. For oft, when on my couch I lie with wisdom in a pensive mood, I raise the volume to my eye, which is the bliss of solitude. I feast on stacks and anecdotes and savour all the editor's notes. That's astonishing. (laughs) Wordsworth, I didn't know he was that good a poet. (laughs) That is some of his best work. That's fantastic. (laughs) Yes, it was. It was only recently discovered. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you very much, uh, Lawrence. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. It's goodbye for me, Peter Rayborn, in a sun-blessed Wiltshire. Goodbye for me, uh, Richard Heller, in Shropshire, where the pigs are grunting contentedly.